Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is the fashion designer Isaac Mizrahi. He released his memoir, I Am, in 2019. His streaming concert series, Isaac at Café Carlisle, launches Friday, December 4th, with three additional shows to follow through March. Visit events.broadwayworld.com to learn more. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's been 25 years since Unzipped, and there was this great moment, Isaac, where you're at a newsstand waiting for it to open up so you can get the New York Times and you get a great review on your show and you read it out loud to the camera. That meant a lot to me as sort of a budding arts journalist. You know, it was a well-crafted review and you appreciated it and it was contributing to the cultural dialogue. So Mm -hmm. that was a big moment. And I also think it set up the strong relationship that you have between the arts and fashion a relationship that I think has held throughout your life with your writing, through your show Isaac at Cafe Carlisle, directing, filmmaking, production company, etc. I wonder if you could speak to that relationship. It's hard to isolate these incidents and then relate them back. It's easy for me to talk about my life and how it unfolded and why the arts are probably the most important thing to me. Because like, I was born and raised in New York City, in Brooklyn, right? And then in New York City. And um, I was raised in a sort of a really religious household and a religious community. And I was really kind of on the outside of the whole thing. And then when I was 13, I got accepted to performing arts high school, right? Where I was a drama major. I, I also auditioned for the music department. And I actually didn't get into the music department. I was a really good pianist, but really, I guess I was a better actor. So I got accepted to the drama department and I went. And that formative kind of exposure to the arts, I would really venture to say saved my life. You know, I was in such the wrong place. And I write about this in my memoir. It's hard to kind of like overstress the importance of arts education in a young kid's life. I mean, it really opened my eyes to the not just the possibilities of art, but the happiness or something, the, the, the fulfillment of art, you know? I studied drama. I studied acting at Performing Arts High School. Then I went to Parsons School of Design for fashion because, you know, I found myself kind of at a crossroads when I graduated high school, I was a little afraid of going into show business. So I kind of chickened out and went into what I thought would be a kinder, gentler industry, which was the fashion industry, which was nothing of the sort. But for some reason, it seemed easier for me to get a job, you know, like as a fashion assistant or as a gopher in a design room or something. And I love that fashion was your safe bet of all these things. I know. I mean, that's the joke. That's the joke of it. I never lost the kind of performance element, you know, even when I was a designer, I would venture to say again, that like, probably the best part of my work were the shows I did every whatever it was four times a year, sometimes more than four a year, we had all these fashion shows. And I always thought that my my clothes, you know, as inventive as they were as good as they were really like the best part about it was seeing the story of a woman's life that unfolded in each of the collections. And so like, you know, a lot of times that was misunderstood. 
But I found that to be the most important element in any kind of, of, in the history of any fashion designer is like the story that they tell about women's lives. Mm. And, you know, that is really who I am. I am like this kind of person who likes to write stories and tell stories. So like, you know, when I perform at the Carlisle, there's a lot of music involved. I sing a lot of a lot of songs, and there's a lot of storytelling involved. You know, it's like uh, the better part of the show, right? And and can I just make one thing really clear? You know, um, that scene in Unzipped it kind of sets the pace for the entire movie, which is ironic. You know, that I'm waiting so so desperately for this review. And the thing is, you know, like yes. A review is a very, very important thing. The cultural dialogue, being right in the center of a cultural dialogue like that, is a very kind of stressful and important position to be in, you know. But I will say, arts criticism is important, but it's not as important as the arts, you know. Absolutely. I've never, never been influenced by a review, rarely. I mean, I can think of two times when I was profoundly influenced by a review reviews, I don't think should be the end all be all for an artist. That's the ironic thing. The only thing is as a fashion designer, you really are selling things. So if if a journalist says your clothes aren't so good, you're probably not going to sell that many. And that kind of jeopardizes your position to continue doing what you do and grow what you do, you know? And it really is directly related. It's the same as in the theater. It's like the reason the review is so important is because you're trying to sell tickets, you know? I think it's less important for like a painter or a poet or something because you're not trying to fill seats. If a reviewer says your work is bad, it almost lends your it almost lends your work a kind of cachet. Like, okay, it's bad to you, you know, to that reviewer, but It doesn't, you know, you see what I'm trying to say. Also from that same documentary, and you've spoken to it about telling these stories of women's lives, is how you're taking inspiration from ballet, from dance, from a movie. You get a gesture in your head and the gesture leads to sketches. Mm -hmm. So there again, we have art inspiring your fashion. Yeah. I always kind of maintain that fashion is not exactly an art. It's more like an applied art. Um, But more and more, I'm kind of re-examining that opinion because more and more people are making it into art, you know, and people are like sort of not really concerned with selling it, obviously. It's more about just showing the thing. It's close to like gaining this kind of not-for-profit status, you know. It's difficult to sort of like parse because the actual thing itself is so about commerciality and culture and pop culture and politics. You know, fashion is kind of like this, like this kind of seamless fusion of, I think, art and politics, right? It's a daring, daring thing to do. And I think it's best done by the young, because the young feel these kinds of things very passionately. I continue to do it on a very different level now. I make clothes for QVC and it's all about like, you know, this wonderful Pima Cotton t-shirt that is $35 or something like that. And it's absolutely perfect. And it launders well, or a little cashmere sweater for $110 that's beyond incredibly, you know, the value of that, you know, and it's just, it makes life easy. Whereas like, you know, when I was designing this couture thing and doing these shows, it was like, you know, creating these worlds, these crazy art installations um, that happened to center around Naomi Campbell and Linda Evangelista. But now I feel like now I express myself 
you know, through music and through these shows that I do in nightclubs and in theaters. Um, the last great thing that happened to me before the COVID lockdown was I had this show at the McCarter Theater and it was so fabulous. It was like, I don't know how many people fit in that theater. It was a couple of thousand people. And I appeared there and I did my show with my band on that incredible stage in that incredible uh, theater. And it was just a thrill. And the more I do of those shows, the more I play in front of audiences, the more I talk to audiences, the more I actually find what it was I was put here to do on earth. I prepare stuff. I write stuff. We prepare the music a lot. But then stuff happens on stage. You feel the energy of a certain audience. And it just really is, I think, a form of poetry. You know, it's a form of you pull things out of the energy of the air and you present them back to the audience. It's really something fabulous. And I think that that is what I want to focus my, the rest of my life on. You said fashion is an intersection of arts and politics. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the politics part. You can't do anything in fashion without opining. You know, it's like, I, I know it doesn't sound true, but the minute you define someone's shoulder or the waist or something or the height of a heel or the, the tallness of hair or the, the shadow under someone's eye, you're commenting politically. And I know that sounds very remote, but think about it. Think about this woman standing before you or this man and exactly the way they're dressed and all of the things that that says to you, you know? And then suddenly you find out that all these opposite things about them are true. And you go like, hey, wait a minute. Mm. You didn't tell, you know, and you're surprised because you see what I mean. Like yes. a woman standing before you with huge teased blonde hair and a lot of makeup and very high heels and a really short skirt. And then she tells you she's a left wing feminist. And you go, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know. Because I've made these assumptions about her. Assumptions, exactly, because of the way she looks. And that's the case, that's the case with absolutely everybody who wakes up and puts anything on their body any morning of any week. I think what's so interesting is that as we kind of move away from this kind of suffocating idea that we have about gender, as we move away from that, we expand this kind of incredible, the incredible possibilities for self-presentation. You know, it's almost frightening how exciting it's almost, it almost goes from being terribly exciting to being almost a little frightening when you think about the possibilities. You mentioned this journey from couture to QVC, from couture to the more accessible. I'd love to hear more about those different worlds. You've hinted that perhaps it's the QVC road that has been more rewarding for you. Is that possible? More or less is a difficult sort of... They're different animals. Different. They're different. And the thing is like, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s and I kind of came on to the fashion scene, I had a different agenda and I was saying different things. And then as I evolved in that world, you know, certain aspects of the work started to like dawn on me. And I, I got a little bit like crazy with this idea that what I was doing maybe wasn't, to me anyway, the most democratic thing or something. It wasn't the fairest thing. I think that's just who I am. I have a sense of irony. I have a sense of like subversion that is very mm -hmm. different from my incredibly talented and wonderful peers in the fashion business. I don't understand 
when things are only expensive and only available to a really tiny, tiny, minute population of the world. And it, it's only available in one channel. I mean, I do understand that because like I had, for the most part, I have my suits made on Savile Row, you know what I mean? Or like at the, from this one tailor in Los Angeles, and I spend a fortune on a suit, you know, because I like it and its quality and the way it fits and all that. So to one extent, I really understand that like kind of exclusivity and that availability, you know, that narrow, narrow channel of availability. But when, when I think about what I want my life to stand for, it is not this idea of exclusion. And I also think a lot of the way that fashion sells clothes you know, people in fashion sell clothes is by intimidation, the intimidation factor. It's like, oh yeah, well, you think you're all that, but try this on. And I don't like that either. I mean, there are so many aspects. So where I find myself now with QVC is I'm not that fascinated with the topic of high fashion anymore. I'm not. I don't really care what whoever it is wears at that moment. I don't really find it that relevant. I try to be interested in the red carpet. I try to care about the Met Ball, <laughs> but I so I just I can't. You know what I mean? Yes. I can't. I really try because I, I adore it. I think like somewhere everybody's having a lot of fun with it. But the mixed messages to me, the irony is just different from the irony and the subversion that I am trying to get at. You know what I mean? And so what I'm doing now are these shows at nightclubs and venues like the McCarter Theater. And, you know, now I've done these shows that are available online. You can download them at Broadway World, which is so fun. But anyway, so it's like what I do with my band, I'm trying to make accessible and available to everyone. I watched some YouTube highlights of your Cafe Carlisle show. It looks like good cabaret fun, good patter. What was the impetus for you to say, you know, I think this is something I want to do for people? Well, you know, it was never not what I wanted to mm. do. I'm telling you, like, literally in high school, I used to do like stand up and like, you know, seriously, we'd go to clubs and just do shows. And, and it's funny how accessible that is, how open mics and, you know, cabaret. In those days, if you had a friend who played the piano or I played the piano in those days, you know, it's like you can make a show anywhere. And that's what we kind of used to do a little bit to tell you that, like, I started doing club gigs like for real just when I graduated in, in a way, just when I started graduating college, I was doing shows. And then when I started my company, I stopped for a minute. But then around like the late nineties, I started doing shows like at 88s and all these like crazy little clubs downtown. And then finally I had this show in 2000 off Broadway for two years. I worked on that show. It was workshopped and workshopped. And then finally it ran for about a year. And it was the greatest achievement of my life, I think, to date. You know, it was called Les Mis Rahi. <laughs> it was so good. And it got great reviews and it could have run forever. I just kind of got a little bit like, you know, after a while doing a show like that on a stage, it's not the same thing as what I do in clubs or even now that I found a more like sort of convenient kind of ideal of performance. You know, it was more of like a scripted thing with cues and lighting cues. And it was entirely scripted and memorized, you know, uh -huh. that was like not as interesting as, as what I do now on stage, which is, is scripted definitely, but there's so much more that happens, you know, 
that was how I got into it. I never didn't do it. You know, I always did it. And now I know you sing in this show, but you also, you have a piano at home, right? Yes, I do. I have two incredible pianos. One, one is a German Steinway from like the 1930s, right? And the actual harp is made from this crazy like alloy. Mm-hmm. You know, when I got it, I got it at an auction for almost no money. It was just the luckiest thing in the world. I mean, it was, it's such a fine instrument. I'm definitely not worthy of this thing, right? When I was having it refurbished. It had to be sent to Germany because the alloy, the metal was unfamiliar to the people in, in America. So they had to send it to Germany and get the harp repaired. It was just an incredible thing. I mean, I love that story. <laughs> and then I got another one that's a little bit newer. I'd say this is like, The one I'm looking at here in Bridgehampton is from the 1970s, and it's American. Both of them are M's, so they're perfect size for me. I love an M. I love my piano so much. I love both of them so much. I have to say, like, I thought over the COVID break, I would start getting back into it, you know, playing the piano. Well, that was my next question. Well, darling, I mean, (laughs) I got the Hannon book. I got another Hannon book out here because I know I have, I have like, three Hannon books somewhere in the city, but I've been in Bridgehampton. I got the piano tuned and I got the Hannon book and I got a few new books. I got a new kind of Bartok book and I got a new Bach book and I got a new Kurt Weill book and a Cole Porter yeah. book. And I started and it just, you know what? The thing about playing the piano, man, that is an existential crisis, right? Yes, sir. Yes, darling. I mean, you think, I mean, it's, I think it's the hardest thing to do playing piano, you know? It's a lonely occupation for sure. Yes, it's lonely and full of doubt and full of, again, <laughs> existential dread. There's an existential dread about the piano that I don't think you have maybe as a violinist or an mm. oboe, maybe an oboist, right? Maybe if you play the other, because the oboe's hard too. Yeah, double reed instruments are no joke. Not a joke, not a joke. Well, let's stay with music because I want to talk about your collaboration with one of my favorite people, Mark Morris. Me too. Morris is fluent in music and you are also fluent in music. So I wonder if we could hear a bit about the intersection between choreography and costuming, at least as it exists in your relationship with Mr. Morris. I think that our friendship is based in this idea of music. I mean, he is more fluent than I think anybody I've ever met. Yes. Only other person who knows more about music than Mark is like James Levine or something. (laughs) I mean that. He's like a crazy idiot savant when it comes to music. But I, you know, also love music very much. And, you know, I talk about this sometimes, not often enough. I definitely have this condition, which is synesthesia, right? Mm -hmm. So when I listen to music, I have all kinds of you know, responses, like all kinds of appropriate or inappropriate responses. You know, I see colors and also like I smell things like suddenly, like when I hear music, my sense of smell becomes like stronger, you know, it's a crazy thing. And I think that's what Mark likes about working with me. You know, if I, if I forecast a palette, forget about like what the costume is, but if the palette for one of Mark's shows, I think he just likes the way I forecast colors, you know? Um, And that has to do with synesthesia. But I also think that our relationship is somewhat based in this kind of like, I feel like he's my mentor a lot when it comes to music. He's my mentor in two things, in well-being, in wellness, right? 
Like if I ever have a toothache or a headache or something, I can call Mark and I could say, you know, my jawbone. And he'll go into this whole thing about jawbone and how, and it always like calms me down and it makes me realize that I'm like on the mend. Uh And then if I call him and say like, is that Mio or is that Seti? And he knows exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. He tends to teach well in the area of music. And so when you collaborate with him, is it just a bouncing off of ideas? Is it intuitive? Are you forecasting Messiaen style, these colors onto certain musical passages? What's the process there? Well, yes. Usually it starts as a folly. It starts as like a joke when I work with Mark and I present a sketch and I know he's going to reject it, but I just have to make the joke about the music. I can't remember what the music was that we did for this ballet uh, about four years ago for ABT. It had this kind of military, it was almost Scarlatti. I just can't remember the name of the composer at the moment because I'm dense. (laughs) It had a kind of equestrian thing about it, right? It felt like a kind of dressage drill or something, right? That's what I got from the music. And I got all of these kind of warm colors. So I I did these sketches of like, (laughs) of ballet dancers in like horse costumes with tails and manes. It was a joke, you know, but it wasn't a joke. It was like a really funny idea about the formality of ballet and point work, like the kind of crazy novel idea of point shoes, right? And dressage, teaching a horse to dance sideways. This is After You with music by Hummel? Is that the piece? Yes, Hummel. That's exactly who it was, Hummel. You realize why I brought up Scarlatti, because it does have that kind of martial thing. This is the army, Mr. Jones, you know, (laughs) a happy kind of military march. And so I thought of dressage and point shoes and the relevance of those two thoughts and horses. So I did these horse costumes, you know, and they were beautiful. And he laughed and he was like, exactly. Now, what are we really going to do? And so after the joke was made, I kind of dug in and, and I got the colors and I understood, you know, he told me what he did and didn't want. And in the end, dance costumes, unless you're doing the Nutcracker or, you know, like where you have Arabian costumes and dewdrop costumes and lilac fairies, unless you're doing that, the exercise of creating choreography to music with lights and whatever decor, it's really about human beings moving. And so I end up reducing everything, everything, everything. And and he described to me the things he didn't like and didn't want to see and the things he did like and did want to see. And I came up with these this idea of these very minimal jumpsuits, right, which weren't tight at all and didn't emphasize musculature as much as like, you know, movement and line. And I sort of challenged myself, as I always do with Mark, to sort of make up colors, which means make up, like if there were 13 dances or 15 dances, I made up like 15 different colors. And by them crossing over together, dancing together would create these kind of like, again, like these weird synesthetic kind of relations to the music. Like, oh my God, that orange and that pink together. Like, wow, it's just, it's hitting me in my sinuses.
Would that attention to music, would that carry over to your shows back in the couture days? Is that something that you always planned in as a variable? Yes. Oh my gosh. It was so important to my couture shows. I worked with this wonderful DJ for years called Richard. I forgot his last name, but he was so wonderful. And we used to put together these like heavy soundtracks, like heavy, heavy stuff, like, you know, modern day stuff and house stuff. And like the latest, I remember like RuPaul work. Like I think Mm -hmm. I was the first fashion show that that show ever premiered in, right? Like for instance, And that was a whole exclusive thing with Mr. Paul, right? Then it sort of morphed out of that. Like by the time I was like in the 2000s, like 2003, 2004, I was commissioning people like, you know, Nico Muley wrote a score for one of my shows. It was incredible. It was like, I remember it was strings and it was either five pieces or seven pieces. It was about bees and it was this kind of buzzy, buzzy, buzzy string thing. The whole thing was about insects. The collection was about insects. And he made this music that was so beautiful and it sounded like insects. And then I collaborated with, I don't know if you know Ethan Iverson and the Bad Plus. And sure. Yeah. Well, I collaborated with them like three or four times. They wrote insanely beautiful music for my fashion shows. And, you know, we never did that album. We should do that album, shouldn't we? The Bad Plus Isaac Mizrahi album. Absolutely. Ethan Iverson is no longer their front man, but you could collaborate with either or both of them. I think that would be a marvelous concept. Right, right. True. You mentioned your memoir, which came out last year, I Am, which I believe is short for Interesting Man. (laughs) I wonder if you could tell me some of the discoveries that you made when you had to sort of reminisce, I imagine, about so many things in your life and try to quantify them. I never thought I would write a memoir at such a young age, darling. But then I was having dinner with this really smart guy who's a friend of mine and now my book agent called David Kuhn. And he was like, you know, you should write a memoir. And at first I thought, no, he's wrong, right? Because I wanted to do a book of some kind. He was like, do a memoir. That's what everybody wants, right? So the minute he said that, I kind of went into this involuntary reverie about this thing about writing a memoir. And I just started, right? Then we kind of wrote this short thing and he took it out and he made this crazy deal. So once that was done and once I was writing it, there was nothing more important to me in my life. Like that was the driving factor of those four or five years that I worked on that book. Like I couldn't wait to get to it. Also, it filled me with dread because I was telling this story about, you know, my childhood and my mother and my father and my family and my the community I come from. And it wasn't the prettiest picture, you know? And I'm not kidding. My mom, the first thing she said to me when I told her I was working on a memoir, because my mom is very, very, very literate. Like she reads everything. And she said, oh, darling, if you're going to write a memoir, you have to tell the truth, right? And I thought, wow, good one, right? Like she's right. Of course, then I would call her and say, oh, do you remember that time when, and she oh, you can't tell that story. Well, of course, but that's mom talking, right? But at the same time, she told me to tell the truth. So it was a hard thing to kind of rationalize. It was like a tightrope walk to to rationalize. But it was fascinating. And I have to say it was cathartic, the most cathartic thing I've ever done. One really important thing to me when writing the memoir was that I kind of rid it and myself of any kind of rancor or anger or something. I just wanted it to be a kind of neutral telling of a story. I wanted it to be my story. I have to say that was the great pleasure. At the end, it really was my story. Without anger, without any kind of 
political leanings. Although, of course, you see what I mean. It was very neutral. It was just my telling the story in as beautiful a way as I can think of telling it, right? And building on something and crescendoing. And I like a page turner. I got to tell you, I do like (laughs) a page turner. When it was finished and I finally submitted the book to the editor and when we were doing the, you know, the fine kind of editing of it, right? I felt a combination of things. One, I felt incredibly accomplished, right? Two, I felt very justified in the life I live. I thought, well, this is my story and and it is the real story. This is the truth, right? And if anybody doesn't like it, that's their problem. I can't worry about that anymore. I've told my version of the story. And if you don't like it, you can't be my friend or something. You know, like it really placed me in the world that I live. Sounds like you were able to own yourself as a result of that experience. Yeah. More so than when you started. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Owning is a good word. Owning a life. We're in quarantine now. Do you do you find yourself falling into a quarantine wardrobe? Well, do, do you, are you still conscious of what you put on every day? You know, even before quarantine, I had a very, very set number of things that I wear. Honestly, like I never thought of myself as terribly good looking or, you know, terribly good in clothes. Of course, looking back on my younger days when I actually had a better body and I could wear clothes, I probably should have seen myself as more of a, of a subject, you know, or an object or something. You know, I, I never thought of myself as an object. I thought of myself as, you know, the background. And, and I, I always thought of myself as a face maybe, and not so much a body. I was a fat kid, so I don't really consider my body that much. So I wear only black, which is true, only. Like I rarely black and maybe sometimes white, a little bit of a white shirt with black. But usually there's a black jacket over it, you know? I wear dark gray sometimes, but mostly black. And I wear either a t-shirt with long sleeves or a polo shirt with long sleeves, which I have made because I can't find them to fit me properly. So I have them made in this wonderful knit that I use actually for QVC. It's this wonderful quality that I love. And I get these suits made by this tailor in Los Angeles. And I make pants that I wear all the time. And I make these jackets and things that I wear all the time. But they're very simple. And it's I haven't really erred from this formula for a good 20 years, you know. And now, of course, I'm wearing, you know, sweatpants more than I would <laughs> not quarantine, you know. But otherwise, it's pretty much the same person. What about you? Are you wearing sweatpants all the time or what? No, but I have to tell you, I lost some weight since Corona because normally I'm back and forth between New York and Berlin, but now I'm in Berlin, been in Berlin since March and one eats better over here, but I'm a 35 waist living in 36 jeans. And maybe that's a question for you. (laughs) Do I take these jeans to the tailor? I've punched a hole in my belt but that's not getting it done. Well, now, wait a second. No, darling, nothing sexier or more fabulous than oversized clothes. Don't touch it. <laughs> Don't touch it. Don't leave it exactly as is. I mean, how chic to be in baggy clothes. I love <laughs> that. I mean, if you're going to be in baggy clothes somewhere, it should be Berlin, right? Yes. Jawohl. You better work.
listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard the Nash Ensemble performing the opening of Johann Nepomuk Humo's Septet in C Major on CRD Records. Isaac Mizrahi's streaming concert series, Isaac at Cafe Carlisle, launches Friday, December 4th, with three additional shows to follow through March. Visit events.broadwayworld.com to learn more. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Our outro music is RuPaul's Supermodel, You Better Work, on Tommy Boy Music. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard, or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>